these six weeks of study. Um, but but number two, um, this sweet, sweet mug um, that I received recently, Park City, Utah, is also an extraordinary mug. So thank you. Um, what we are doing is recapping Revelation. And um, what we're, we're doing that by um, getting... Um, questions that you guys have been sending in uh, via Facebook um, or or to me personally on email or otherwise and we're taking an opportunity to hit um, those questions and to revisit some of the issues that are a little more complicated or aren't as easily resolved and thank you for everybody who's been submitting questions and I have several I want to work through this morning and I think they're ones that that um, get at the heart of what kind of literature Revelation is and how to best interpret and understand it. But before we dive in, as always, let's ask the Lord for grace and mercy. Lord, um, we come to you this morning in a posture of humility and just recognizing you are God, we are not. And we want to submit all of our interpretations, all of our understandings of your holy word to you and to ask that you would lead, guide, and correct us as necessary. Um, and Lord, help us not to, to forget on the most fundamental level um, what you are revealing to us in this book, and that is yourself, so that we can place our hope and trust and faith in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to preface um, our remarks this morning by, by encouraging all of us um, wherever we are, whatever our background, for some of you, um, this is your first in-depth study of Revelation. Um, others of you have spent years um, in this book and reading supplemental literature. And just an encouragement that we need to understand for 2,000 years, the church has struggled with how to best interpret this book. Okay, so this is not a new experience, a unique experience. Um, on our behalf, um, there are a variety of scholars and historians and theologians, um, professors, writers, authors who have adopted a variety of positions um, who feel very strongly about them. And, and whenever there's that sort of diversity of opinion by people we know, love, and respect, then that should probably signal to all of us that we need to have a heavy dose of what I would call hermeneutical um, expositional humility and and really to 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 make sure we are capitalizing and focusing on the most important things um, that the book of Revelation communicates to us which I think are abundantly clear relates to our hope the second coming of Christ um, the glory of God the revelation of Jesus um, are all obviously central themes, perseverance in the face of persecution. So one of the, uh, well, I say all that to say this is one of the reasons that in our statement of faith as a church family at Four Oaks, we don't adopt a specific eschatological framework other than what orthodoxy has always affirmed, which is that Jesus is coming back bodily, visibly, um, to judge, um, as the Apostle Creed said, Apostle Creed says the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, that there will be an, e an eternal life that every soul that's ever been made will, will 
live either in an eternal state of, of glory with Jesus or in hell separated from the presence of God. Um, that we are to expect the return of Christ. We are to seek it. We are to live life uh, today in light of that second coming. And this should occupy our hearts that we live this day in light of that day. And so that those are the kinds of things our theological statement of faith as a church confesses. And obviously on the other issues about the timing of Christ's return and the condition of the world and the identity of, of various players in that end time scenario, those things are all things we I think we want to hold in a in an open hand. So saying all that, um, there's been a number of questions and I'm and I'm reading off my, my list here about I think maybe some confusion about how exactly is it that we are reading the book of Revelation. So in other words, how literally do we take it? The signs, the seals, the numbers. Um, and and it seems, um, some of you have been asking that, that are we applying a different set of rules to reading Revelation that we wouldn't apply to other parts of Scripture, meaning obviously when we read the Gospels, for example, and it tells us that Jesus did this, this, and this, on these particular days, or um, we read uh, even in our study of Genesis, when 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 Joseph dreams or Pharaoh dreams about seven um, seven years of famine, and what, why do we take those literally, but not everything in Revelation literally? And and the first thing to remember is that the Book of Revelation is what we. We have to all, let me back up. We always have to interpret scripture um, according to the genre, okay, or as D.A. Carson would say, the genre, um, meaning the, the kind of literature it is, how it's written. And so we see there's different genres across scripture, right? There is what we would call narrative or storytelling. That, that's Genesis primarily, okay? We see epistles, okay, or letters, like the letters of Paul. We see the Gospels, and those are more history. Well, Revelation is written in a form of literature that we're not super familiar with today. It's called apocalyptic literature. And um, this was a very um, popular um, kind of writing in literature, uh, probably in the intertestamental period, um, all the way leading up to um, the first couple of centuries of the life of the church, not just in Christendom, but broadly speaking, in culture and apocalyptic literature, again, think about it, poetry on steroids, right? Think about it as um, creative writing or abstract art, okay? So it, it, it would be to, um, you know, if you think about something, um, Thomas Kincaid's portraits, okay? Uh, what he would paint, what you see is what you get compare that to the Impressionists or compare that to the abstract art and and they're each trying to tell similar things but in vastly different ways. Think about apocalyptic literature, literature that way. We do have examples of apocalyptic literature other than Revelation in the Bible. So for example, uh, Daniel is, is part historical narrative and it's part apocalyptic literature. Um, Ezekiel part historical narrative, part apocalyptic literature. And this would not have been strange for the people who were reading this to, to 
identify it. And so it's harder for us to identify um, than, than it would be for them because they were obviously well steeped in it, okay? So it'd be kind of like giving someone in the first century one of J.K. Rowling's books, Harry Potter, and asking them to make sense of it. it. It would have made little sense, okay? Some of it would have made some kind of sense, but other parts of it would make, was seem bizarre, okay? Because it's not part of the culture they lived in, the same thing for us. So in, in interpreting scripture, we always have to go back to the root. We always have to go back to the context. We always have to go back to the Sitzenleben, the situation of life that things were situated in. Secondly, remember that the word, and if you look in Revelation 1, I'll, and you can turn there, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's where we get the word apocalypto. Okay, that's the, the word apocalypto literally means, okay, to reveal by numbers and symbols. And so, so John's already told us, okay, that, that the nature of this book is going to be different. It's going to be a, an apocalyptic vision, meaning it's going to be a symbolic vision full of imagery and and odd shapes and numbers and such that are meant to be interpreted in the apocalyptic genre okay so so one of the things um that we come across is obviously no one okay takes everything in revelation literally okay to do so would make so much of it um be nonsensical okay so when we talk about um the bra you know the the you know the lamb having horns that come out of its head okay so we, we know john here is referring to the lamb of god which is jesus and so we ought not to think that one day in heaven we're going to be around the throne worshiping a literal animal that has horns seven horns or four horns poking out of its body okay that's obviously meant to be taken symbolically. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The horns represent power and authority. Um, now, it is a definitely, absolutely a challenge to know at what points in time we are to read literally versus figuratively. And of course, this is where um, the, the debates come in. But we have to, we have to understand, uh, again, um, how they were the original readers were going to understand okay these things in their context okay now there's a couple of let me just there's a lot of directions we could go here but let me point out a couple of things so one of the things that dispensational theology or what I would call left but left behind um, views of eschatology would talk about is the idea of a rapture okay and so what is rapture well rapture um, is the idea that got in the word raptura just really means to be caught up okay to be to be snatched away and it's a word that comes from first thessalonians 4 and you can you can flip there if you're if you've got your bibles with you um and the idea is that um those who proclaim the existence of a rapture or the, a future event called the rapture remember this was a, a doctrine that was never part of orthodoxy was was never affirmed by the church up until about 200 years ago when it became uh, more popular in the Plymouth Brethren movement and then primarily only in North America okay not in other parts of the world not in the rest of the history of Christendom okay and it was born out of this idea that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and there's going to be um, a, a specific 
season of tribulation and the appearance of an antichrist. And so God um, is going to rescue his people and snatch them up secretly before all these end time events unfold. And that's the secret coming of Christ um, where we're caught up in the air. And then there's going to be a public second coming of Christ um, at the end of the age, okay, once the, once the tribulation is over. Well, the problem with this, I think, is that there really is, in my estimation, no specific passage which supports the idea that Jesus is coming back twice, okay? Because that's what you affirm when you affirm the rapture. He's going to come back once in secret, second in um, publicly. And we clearly see evidence, I mean, obviously, um, all over the place that Jesus is coming again, that he's, uh, we can put our hope in that, it's our future hope, his return is imminent. But I don't think we see any specific passage, okay, that that affirms the rapture. Now, the one that is most commonly um, referred to, which we get the word raptura, is from 1 Thessalonians 4. And, and let me read this, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, the way the church over the last 2,000 years has understood this, I think, correctly, if you just read it literally, okay, this is talking about the second coming of Christ, okay? That one day he is going to come again, that he's going to be bring with him the saints that have died, that he is going to issue a loud command. This is going to be a very public, very visible, very loud um, appearance. Those Christians who are alive, okay, at this second coming will we'll be brought up to him in the air, will meet him in the air, and this will usher in the end of the age, the final judgment. Well, in recent years, some have taken this passage to refer to a secret rapture, that we will be caught up with Christ. Well, to say that it's secret goes against the literal meaning of the text, right? Because there is nothing secret about this event. It's very public. There are trumpets. There are public witnesses. Well, the reason people have gone to this passage to support the rapture is because their eschatological framework, the way they're interpreting other parts of the Bible, necessitate it. The way they read Revelation, they read it chronologically and not cyclically and symbolically, um, seems to say that, well, something's going to, with all these bad things happening, God's people have to be removed from this. And so, so we want to affirm this by looking for evidence that, how, how does God get his people out of there before the bad things happen? Well, I, again, I don't, I don't see, I see the evidence of revelation saying God's people aren't going to be spared persecution. They're just called to endure and persevere in it. Now, n make no mistake, at the end of the age, most certainly there's going to be an intensification of, of persecution. There is going to be um, a season of great tribulation. There is 
John tells us there's been many antichrists, but the one antichrist is coming. So most certainly, those are all things that that we can affirm. But for but but this is a good example of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, okay, and letting what Paul says, okay, um, stand on its own merits and not reading into something from Paul because our framework of interpretation necessitates that we interpret it a specific way okay now in thinking about this um and i want to bring this to a close as we can continue tomorrow um when we think about numbers and things in the book of revelation um remember sometimes the numbers are literal sometimes they're symbolic and it's it's for example there are seven churches okay there's literal seven churches but we are told what the seven churches are okay other times okay we are um we are we are given numbers and when you are a jewish christian like most of these readers would have been who are being persecuted um apocalyptic literature and numbers always meant a certain thing um symbols meant a certain thing that again they were they were they were meant to convey imagination and texture now there's a lot more we could say about this okay um and I want to continue um, this discussion tomorrow. But in the meantime, um, keep submitting your questions here on the Facebook live stream comment section. You can um, email me, paul.gilbert at fourhawkschurch.com. But at least we have a sense in which um, uh, a place, a placeholder to kind of put our stake in the ground on a, some of the questions that you guys have been um, submitting. And um, we want to continue on that process. Thank you guys. Thanks for your kindness, your patience, um, and then also bringing these questions and asking God's word to bear upon them. He is our ultimate authority, okay? Lord, we ask for your help and your grace now. We really want to uh, come under your word. We really want to let your word be the final authority. And there's so many questions here. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that we could all bring a posture of humility as we seek to understand them to live our lives in accordance and obedience to you. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to be back tomorrow.